For those of you who are members of Veritas, uh, you should have received a letter this past week from Pastor Curtis announcing his recent decision to step down from his role as elder here. As he stated, he is not stepping away because of any disqualifying sin or personal grievance or any disunity among his fellow elders. In his own words, quote, As much as I love the body of Christ at Veritas and as much as I love the brotherly affections and fellowship I've enjoyed with my fellow elders, it is much more important that I step back from my pastoral service and reinvest my time, heart and devotions to my Savior, King Jesus, my rescue and redeemer. Pastoral ministry is time, heart and head consuming. So we support Pastor Curtis and his decision to step away from pastoral ministry in order to reinvest his time and heart into other priorities. The remaining elders, myself, Greg Baltzer and Jeff Cassinelli, uh, Cassinelli? <laughs> That's better than Cassinelli. What did I say? Cassinelli? Yeah. Myself, Greg, and Jeff, uh, we have, uh, especially this past week, we, we all met together and extended our deep gratitude to Curtis for his six plus years of serving as elder here. And we would encourage all of you, please do the same. We would encourage you to extend gratitude and honor to Curtis for his ministry here. His ministry has been strong. It has been wise and it has been faithful. So thank you, Curtis. Thank you. As a church, we have been studying Paul's first letter to the Corinthians together. In the first part of his letter, beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, and continuing through chapter 4, verse 21, Paul is addressing a problem in that church. It was the problem of division. There were factions divided up under different teachers and they were fighting with and looking down on one another. So far in our study, Paul has confronted the problem of division at a root level, which is pride. Pride. Thinking more highly of themselves than they should. Pride making more of themselves than they should. Pride taking credit for more than they should. It was ugly self-absorbed pride beneath the disunity at the church in Corinth. In chapter 2, Paul worked to conquer it by reminding them how they ended up, who they were, and how little they had to do with it. They were children of God, but only by the grace of God. And so there was nothing in themselves or in any teacher to boast in. They had wisdom and they understood truth, but only, only because God had revealed it to and illuminated it in their hearts. P.T. Forsyth, a Scottish theologian, once said, the truth we see depends upon the men we are. And they had been made by God, men and women of God. So stop the boasting and stop the fighting and stop the dividing. And that has basically been Paul's challenge so far. But he's not done. In fact, by chapter 3, verse 1, he's only halfway through his discourse on division. Now, beginning with today's text, Paul speaks much more directly about the issue describing it as an inexcusable spiritual immaturity. And some of you this morning, maybe many of you are spiritually immature. And for some of you, that's okay. It's understandable. It's even acceptable. That was the immaturity of the Corinthian Christians shortly after they had been 
converted. And it was defensible because they were new to Christ and they were new to faith. And Paul, in our text today, will remind his readers of that early excusable immaturity. But that was then and this is now. About five years had gone by. And the Corinthians should be farther along by now. They should be farther along in their faith. Their spiritual immaturity is no longer defensible. It's indefensible. And it was leading to significant problems in their church. Not just division, but others which we'll see later. And so the theme of our text and sermon this morning is spiritual maturity. Or more precisely, the theme is spiritual immaturity. And I believe that Paul's aim is to rattle his readers into reflection. He's going to write in a way to shake them up, which Paul often does in his letters. And then after he shakes them up, he's going to ask them some hard questions that will draw them into self-examination. So when we get there, In the text and in the sermon today, when we get there, I think we would be wise to ask ourselves the same questions. To consider our own spiritual maturity, or maybe like the Corinthians, our own spiritual immaturity. Now, as we move forward, as always, we need to remember that this is God's word. And in God's word alone, we learn who we are. We learn who God is. And most importantly, we learn how we as sinful human beings can be reconciled to God. And so if his word is preached and the Holy Spirit blesses it and works in the hearts and minds of those who are listening, then it will be for your good and God's glory. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth. Fill our hearts with desire. And move our wills to trust, honor, and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you can find under a seat in front of you, and you're free to take with you if you don't own a Bible, you will find today's text on page 619. I dropped Kristen off at the airport this morning. She is visiting a friend in Southern California for the next three days. So if you would be in prayer for the remaining Myers... It often doesn't go so well when mom is out of town. I think it's why she rarely leaves town. Let me just give you one example how it's already gone bad. She's been gone for four hours. And so I have more responsibilities when when my wife is gone, like it triples or like times 10. So I get sort of in like a brain fog. I get very distracted by everything that I'm trying to juggle. And so sometimes I miss some things. Things fall through the cracks. So this morning, my my sweet daughter, Avery, she's playing on my phone because I need her to play on my phone right now. So she's playing on my phone and she hands it to me and she says, Daddy, can I something? I don't know exactly what she asked. I wasn't I wasn't listening. (laughs) And she she hands me the phone and all I've got to do is give it my thumbprint. Right. So I give it my thumbprint because I'm busy doing other things. So I give her my thumbprint, and then I pass it back. And then I have one of those delayed reactions where, like, what was on the screen sort of flashes in my mind a few seconds too late. And so uh, she hands it back to me, and I had just bought slippers for Angela the cat. (laughs) In the amount of $99.99. And I'm like, undo, undo, back, back, and there's nothing. 
so seriously, if you know how to undo that, I need to talk to you. Okay, there is a special altar call for you today. Won't you come, just as you are, and tell me how to get my hundred bucks back? Golly, like maybe 99 cents, I wouldn't sweat it. But a Benjamin for slippers for a cat? Good night. I hope Angela's happy. So, (laughs) let us transition. We're going to begin by looking at verses 1 and 2. All right, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. In these two verses, Paul describes what I've called excusable immaturity. So let's find out what that is. Here are verses 1 through 2a. So the first part of verse 2. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So let's look at these verses by asking three questions. Number one, when is Paul talking about? Number two, who is Paul talking about? Number three, what is Paul talking about? So number one, when is Paul talking about here in these two verses? Well, Paul is looking back. He's looking back to when he first came preaching and teaching in Corinth, which would have been about five years before he writes this letter. I fed you, he says, past tense. You were not ready, he says, past tense. So when is Paul talking about? What's the time frame? He is looking back about five years. Question number two, who is Paul talking about? Well, he begins by calling them what? Brothers. Which means that whatever he says here, Paul considers them Christians. That's important because Paul is going to say some things about the Corinthians that may cause some to question their Christianity. But there doesn't seem to be any doubt in Paul's mind. Brothers. A term of endearment used among Christians is what he calls them. And then at the end of verse 1, he calls them infants, what? In Christ. And when Paul uses that term, in Christ, as he did in 1 verse 30, he means united to Christ. He means Christians. This entire letter, after all, chapter 1 verse 2, is addressed to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is Paul talking about? He is talking about Christians. And number three, what is Paul talking about? Spend some more time here. What is Paul talking about? What does Paul have to say about the Corinthian Christians five years ago? Verse 1, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So that's the first thing he says about them. I could not address them as spiritual people. Why not? He tells us because they were people of the flesh. Now, Paul uses that term of the flesh three times in this text. So it's important that we figure out what it means. For Paul, the flesh refers to unredeemed human nature. In other words, the flesh refers to who we are and what we want apart from God's grace. That's the flesh. When Paul uses it in the Bible, he's talking about who we are and what we want Apart from God's grace, worldly desires, that's the flesh. Selfish desires, that's the flesh. Any desires that are contrary to God's desires, that's the flesh. Let me give you a sampling of how Paul uses this word in a couple of his other letters. Two locations. One in Romans and the other in Galatians. So first, in Romans 13, verse 13, he says this. Let us walk properly... As in the daytime, 
Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the flesh has desires, he's telling us. And some of them he just listed. Getting drunk, sexual immorality, fighting, jealousy. Here's one more example, this time in Galatians, chapter five, verse 19. There, Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And again, Paul gives a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are all, he calls them, works of of the flesh. So imagine, here's the picture. Imagine within you two armies at war. And one is the flesh and one is the spirit. This is how Paul describes it in Romans 7:23. Within a Christian is the flesh and is the spirit, and they're at war with one another. They have different desires. And sometimes the flesh wins, and sometimes the spirit wins. So when Paul says the Corinthians were people of the flesh, he means that the desires of the world and the ways of the world were still evident in their lives. The flesh was maybe winning those battles more than the spirit, which is no surprise because they were, and he has this term for them, Infants in Christ. In other words, they were brand new Christians. They had just come to Christ. They were spiritual infants. They were spiritual babies. Therefore, Paul is saying because they were infants in Christ. With the desires and ways of the world still evident in them. He could not address them as spiritual people. Now, he obviously means something different than what he meant by that term in chapter two, verse 15, because there a spiritual person meant a person with the Holy Spirit. And Paul is not saying that the Corinthians don't have the Holy Spirit. Remember, he calls them brothers. He says that they are in Christ and he just brought up their reception of the Holy Spirit in chapter two, verse 12. So here's what he means when he says, I could not address you as spiritual people. Here's what he means. Compared to the world. These Christians in Corinth compared to the world, compared to unbelievers, they were spiritual people, meaning that they possessed the Holy Spirit. But compared to other believers. Compared to mature believers, they were not yet spiritual. They were not yet mature. They were, what is the term he uses? They were infants. They were infants in Christ. And so what did Paul do with them early on? This is the second thing he says about them. We find it in verse 2. So I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now this refers to teaching. When the Corinthians first became Christians, Paul gave them milk, which means very basic teaching. They needed the basics of Christianity, the milk, before moving on to more complex and challenging doctrines, which Paul calls solid food. And the reason, he says, is that they were not ready for it. And they were not ready for it because they were spiritual infants. And you don't give infants solid food. Because they're not ready for it. An infant, we have infants here today. An infant cannot process solid food. An infant is not yet capable of getting what it needs from solid food. An infant could even be endangered by solid food. So this wasn't a bad thing. It was a a normal thing. Even a good thing. Peter speaks of this milk for the immature very positively. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, like newborn infants, 
Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The author of Hebrews uses this same metaphor in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, where he was talking about a very complex doctrine, the high priesthood of Jesus. And this is what he said to the Hebrews about this. That is the high priesthood of Jesus. We have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, he said to them, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And here's the very important biblical principle. He says, but solid food is for the mature. So solid food is for the mature. And five years ago, the brand new Corinthian Christians were not ready for it. So if we answered our third question about these verses. What is Paul talking about? He is talking about spiritual immaturity. What does he have to say about the Corinthian Christians five years ago? They were understandably spiritually immature. Their immaturity was defensible and even excusable because they were infants in Christ. But that was then. And this is now. Five years had gone by. The Corinthians had the Holy Spirit. They had scripture. They had inspired teachers, but they were still immature. And the spiritual immaturity that was excusable then is not excusable now. So in the next few verses, Paul describes what I've called inexcusable immaturity. So that early on immaturity was excusable and defensible. This he moves on to now is inexcusable Immaturity. Let's begin by reading the second half of verse 2. And even now you are not yet ready. Do you hear the admonition? Even now you are not ready. Five years ago, when you were infants in Christ, you were not ready for solid food. But now, what's he saying? You should be ready. This immaturity is inexcusable. Why weren't they now ready for it? Verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. Still. In other words, you should not still be of the flesh. Verse 1 tells us they were of the flesh in the beginning, but they shouldn't be of the flesh now. The appeal and the desires of the world should have faded by now, but apparently they hadn't. Now, Lord willing, as we keep studying this letter in weeks and months to come, we will get a more clear picture of their immaturity. That is who the Corinthian Christians were. They were very immature Christians. And Paul is going to have a lot to say about that. But right here, Actually, just in the next couple verses, Paul's going to give us a more clear picture. He gets more specific. And he does this by describing how they were still of the flesh. Verse 3, what does it say? For while there is jealousy and strife among you. Remember, both of those made the list of works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Jealousy and strife. He's brought this up before to them in this letter. And he brings it up here as an example of how they're still immature. There should not be jealousy among Christians. If there's jealousy among Christians in a church, that's a sign of serious spiritual immaturity. There should not be strife. Or quarreling. Or fighting. And then Paul asks this question. This heart probing question. 
Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He didn't have to ask them. He could have just told them. It's sort of a rhetorical question, isn't it? He could have just said, there is jealousy and strife among you. Therefore, you are still of the flesh and behaving in a human way. But he doesn't tell them. He asks them. Why does he do that? Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we ask our kids questions that we already know the answer to? It causes consideration. It causes consideration. When someone asks you a question, you cannot help but consider an answer to the question. So he is challenging them to examine themselves. He goes on in verse 4. He's brought up the jealousy and the fighting, and now he brings up the division. Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. That's another problem. He's pointed it out before, the proud dividing under teachers. And then again, he asks them a question. And his question is this, when you do that, are you not being merely human? So look at those two questions. The first question is, are you not behaving only in a human way? And the second question, are you not being merely human? Only human? Merely human? Well, remember, we are not only human. We are not only flesh Christians. We have the Holy Spirit. We are flesh and spirit. There is a war within us. And Paul is asking the question, where's the war? Where's the battle? Where's evidence of the Holy Spirit? All I'm seeing is works of the flesh. I'm just seeing the flesh. I'm just seeing only human. I'm just seeing merely human. He's asking, where is evidence of the Holy Spirit? You're acting as if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, the Corinthians are believers. He makes it a point to address them as believers. He's saying, I believe that you are Christians. So Paul is not talking about when he talks about these things they're doing wrong. When he talks about these behaviors that aren't what they should be, he's not talking about their salvation. He's talking about sanctification. This big theological word. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about sanctification. For Christians, salvation is an event. But sanctification is a process. You'll hear Christians say this. We have been saved. And we are being saved. Sanctification refers to the maturing. And the spiritual growth of a Christian. Let me share just a few verses with you. The talk about sanctification. So you know what Paul's talking about here. Here's one. 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's one way to look at sanctification. Sanctification is growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim... Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So sanctification is maturing in Christ. And Ephesians 4.15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are Christians. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So put all these verses together. Sanctification is spiritual growth. Sanctification is maturing as a Christian. 
Sanctification is this process where we begin to look more and more like Jesus. So here's what's happening in Corinth. Here's what this immaturity is. The Corinthians are believers acting like unbelievers. And that's a problem. For those of you who are here and are believers, have you ever acted like an unbeliever? You have, haven't you? I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. But often, I don't act like I'm a Christian. Often, I don't think like a Christian. Often, I don't speak like a Christian. And often, I don't act like a Christian. Do you know that about yourself? Your family knows it. Those close to you know it. Those who spend time with you that you have relationships with, they know it. You may be a believer, you may be a Christian, but sometimes you do not act like a Christian. Well, there was a lot of that. A lot of that going on in Corinth. And it shouldn't have been going on as much as it was. They should be more mature by now is what Paul is saying. There is a failure to thrive. It's as if they're still infants in Christ. There is a failure to launch spiritually. Now, I said in the introduction of this sermon that Paul's aim was to rattle his readers into reflection. That's why he asks the questions. I said it would be good for us to consider our own spiritual maturity or immaturity. So in conclusion, I have a few questions to ask. That I hope will be helpful. As you consider your spiritual maturity or your spiritual immaturity. The first question. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? Relationally. Not know about Jesus, but know Jesus. Do you trust Jesus? In other words, have you heard and do you believe the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done? Jesus came and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead in the place of sinners like you. And like me, so that sinners like you and like me could be reconciled to God. Do you believe that gospel? And so do you trust Jesus for your salvation? Do you obey Jesus? Is he king and is he Lord? Is there a desire to obey him and to please him? Do you enjoy Jesus? Is he a delight in your life? Is your life sweeter because of knowing Jesus? Do you talk about Jesus? These are more questions to ask, to answer that question. Am I a Christian? The way not to answer the question, am I a Christian, is... When I was a kid, I invited Jesus into my heart. Or when I was a kid, I got baptized. Or when I was a kid, I went forward at the altar call. Or those are the wrong kinds of questions to ask. When you you ask yourself if you're a Christian, you shouldn't look at some past thing that happened to you. You should ask yourself right now. Do I know Jesus? Am I trusting Jesus? Am I obeying Jesus? Am I enjoying Jesus? Am I proclaiming Jesus? Do I trust him for salvation and nothing else? Am I a Christian? And if you're not a Christian this morning, then right now, right now in your mind and heart, you should place your faith and trust in him. 
turn from your sin. And trying to reach God and reach heaven by your own works and your own good deeds. Give all that up. Acknowledge that it's impossible. Thank God for what Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And trust Him as your Savior. So ask yourself this morning, are you a Christian? The second question. If you are a Christian, so the answer is yes to number one. I'm not a perfect Christian. I'm, I don't always obey. Of course not. I don't always enjoy. Of course not. I don't always trust. Of course not. We all understand that. But you're a Christian. If you are a Christian, question number two, are you growing? This is really what Paul is talking about in this text, isn't it? Spiritual maturity. Spiritual immaturity. Are you growing as a Christian? Haven't you gone through seasons where you're not maturing? I have. Haven't you gone through seasons that you would call dry? Seasons where you felt like you were stagnant in your spiritual life? You ever have seasons in your spiritual life where you feel as if it's one step forward and two steps back? So where are you right now, this morning? Are you growing right now? Are you maturing? Now notice I'm not asking the question, are you mature? Because that's really subjective, right? Mature compared to who? You can always find someone you're more mature than, and you can always find someone that you're not as mature as. That's a real tricky question. So it's not, are you mature? Have you arrived today? That's not the question. But the question for Christians to always consider is, am I maturing? Am I growing? Now, let me make a side note here. Some of you today are infants in Christ. You have not known Jesus for long. You have not been trusting Jesus for long. You have not had time to read much of the Bible. You, you, you have not had much time to develop a relationship with Jesus. Or, or maybe you're here and you're a Christian, but you're very young. And, and you're still maturing in all kinds of ways, physically, mentally, emotionally. And so, of course, you're still maturing spiritually. You have a, a ways to go before you will be mature in Christ. You are still an infant in Christ. And so listen, because I think Paul makes this point. There's nothing wrong with that. That is normal. That is understandable. Christians don't start mature. Just like people. That's the metaphor, right? Just like people do not start mature. But... Are you maturing? Are you growing? Or are you, are you a believer way too often that is acting like an unbeliever? Now the third question, if you are a Christian and you're not growing or you are growing the third question is, what are you doing to mature? This doesn't just happen. It clearly does not just happen. If it did, then the Corinthian Christians would be mature, right? Because five years had gone by. C.K. Barrett says, mere lapse of time does not bring Christian maturity, though one might hope that it would do so. This is why you've met professing Christians that have been professing Christians for 50 years and yet they're not as mature as someone you know who's been professing Christ for five years and vice versa. That's just not how it works. Time does not necessarily produce maturity. Most young men in our culture today are a living example of that. Prolonged adolescence, right? 
Lots, what do we have? We have lots of 30-year-old men who don't know what they want to be when they grow up. Right, we know that. That's a, that's a problem in our culture. That's an epidemic in our culture. So maturity does not just happen. It takes more than time. It's something we have to commit to. So question three, what are you doing to mature? Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more as in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what are you doing to work out your salvation? How are you participating in your sanctification? How are you growing? How are you maturing? Same question, asked different ways. My guess, my guess is that many of you here this morning would say, I'm a Christian and I'm not happy with how I'm growing right now. That would be my read as your pastor. That many of you would say, I'm, I'm not maturing right now. I'm not growing right now. So let me just give you, let me close with some very practical suggestions. We don't do this a lot, but sometimes I think it's really important. Let me just give you some practical suggestions. I've, I've got a bunch of them here, maybe nine or ten of them, and I'll go through them real quick. If you're here and you're a Christian and you're not maturing, you're not growing, here are some practical suggestions. Okay, first, commit to regular communion with God through prayer and reading the Bible. Have you ever heard that? Of course we've heard this. Regular communion with God, or another word would be regular fellowship with God. How How does fellowship with God happen? It happens through prayer and reading the Bible. The same as how communion happens between two people, how fellowship happens with two people, right? Communication. You have to communicate with one another. If you have someone you love and you don't communicate with them, it affects the relationship. The relationship does not grow. It does not mature. Every marriage has had seasons where communication has not been what it should be. And it doesn't go well for the marriage when that happens. There's no different in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to commit to regular communion with God. And that happens through prayer and reading the word. When you pray, you're talking to God. When you read the Bible, God is talking to you. That's what it is. It's communication. So commit to that. Regular communion with God. Second, attend worship faithfully. Attend worship faithfully. Being here or at another healthy church that preaches the gospel is something that Christians need to do regularly. I miss one week here, and I'm telling you, I'm not in good shape. I'm really not in good shape. I need to be with other Christians. I need to, I need to sing these songs. I need to pray with you. I need to read Scripture aloud with other Christians. I need to hear the preaching of God's Word. I need people to look me in the eyes and ask me how I'm doing and, and mean it. So... Attend worship faithfully and maybe even arrive early and stay late. Just maybe. That's what the donuts are for. All right. That's the bait on the hook. And I know it works because we buy an insane amount of donuts every week. And I'm always hoping there's going to be a couple left at the end. And there's never anything left. I see your kids walk around like just fisting them. Just like... Just the formed donuts in their hands. So it's, it's a good reason to come early and stay late. And, and maybe something good other than donut eating will happen. Number third, commit yourself to discipleship. So what's that? Discipleship. Well, here's one way to look at that. Here's what discipleship is. 
Discipleship refers to relationships within the family of God, whereby Christians mature spiritually through the imitation and instruction of others in the church and in the home. That's all discipleship is. You need to have relationships with other Christians. This is one of the prime ways that we grow and mature. We need to be around other Christians and we need to hear their instruction and we need to imitate them. It's important for all of us. Fourth, and these would all maybe fit under discipleship, become a committed member of a local church. Whether this church or another good church. Plant the tent stake somewhere. Commit. Become a member of a, of a, of a local family. Prayer. Prayer. Commit to prayer. Pray to God for intentional friendships. God, give me relationships and give me friendships. Give me people who can help me grow and mature as a Christian. Give me examples that I can follow. Give me people that will speak into my life and I can speak into their life. Look for ways to pray for others throughout the week by yourself and or with your spouse. Pray with others publicly. Some of you do that here on Sundays. Or if you're a member here, take the directory on CCB. Pray through it by yourself or with your family. Fifth or sixth, I don't know where we are. Make your conversations intentional. You want to mature and grow in Christ? Make your conversations intentional. Looking specifically to ask questions about others simply that you may know and love them better. Small talk is great. There's nothing wrong with small talk. There's nothing wrong with connecting on all kinds of things that we can connect on. But also be intentional in your conversation. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality with members of your church by inviting them over to your home. Or maybe meet with people. Meet with people. Find someone that you think would be good for you. Maybe somebody that you look up to. Maybe somebody that you'd like to get to know better. Can we get breakfast sometime? Can we get lunch sometime? Can we grab coffee sometime? Attend catechism class. We have our catechism class here where we're with these questions and answers, trying to understand what it is the Bible teaches. Or attend a community group. That's what a community group is. It is intended to be a springboard for relationships, for friendships, for discipleship. And then finally, if you're, if you're looking to mature and you're looking to grow in Christ, there are so many scriptures, we don't have time to go through all of them, that talk about imitation. Okay, we imitate, as Christians, we imitate ultimately who? We imitate Christ. He is our prime example. And as Paul will say in the letter we're studying, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says to the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow Christ. We need examples to follow. If you want to grow and you want to mature, start watching mature Christians. Start watching and paying attention to Christians who are more mature than you are. How do they work? How do they rest? How do they play? How do they raise a family? How do they deal with conflict? How do they evangelize? How do they persevere? How do they serve in the church? How do they fight against sin and imitate them? I received that advice years ago, and it's probably the most helpful advice I ever received in maturing and growing as a Christian. When you see someone do something, when you see a Christian do something, that to you is, is mature, is godly. You see them lose their job. You see them lose a loved one. You see them experience loss. And then you, you see how they get through it. Go to coffee with that person. Sit down with that person and ask them, how did you do that? How did you do that? If, if, if you see a family and you see their kids and you see their kids respecting their mom and dad and honoring their mom and dad or obeying their mom and dad, ask the parents to go out and say, how do you do that? 
How do you do that? How have you matured in that way? How have you grown in that way? Start watching other Christians. Are you maturing as a Christian today? If not, commit this morning to taking your relationship with God more seriously, lest you end up like the Corinthians. Spiritually, where will you be in five years? Every Sunday, here at Veritas, following every sermon, we respond by taking communion together. And we do this in obedience to Jesus Christ and in remembrance of what he accomplished for us on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So do you ever think about what it is that we're doing when we take communion together? We are, as the family of God, remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death. If you are here and visiting, you are invited to take communion with us. If you are a baptized believer, if you have confessed your sin and placed your trust for salvation in the work of Christ, and if you are part of a local church, whether this or another one that preaches the gospel, we'll have leaders up at the front who would like to serve all of us. If you would empty into the center aisle and come forward, we'll give you bread and juice and then take those back to your seats and wait, and we'll take them together as a family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we are turning our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. May you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray. Amen.